Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. Well, we're in what feels like an unusual period. It is January, following a few years of highs and lows on global markets, a lot of drama, and then, frankly, reasonably okay performance on the ASX, relatively speaking. So what do we know about where we're at and what can history teach us about this kind of environment? I'm very, very excited to be talking to Julia Lee from State Street Global Advisors. She hasn't joined us before, but she and I have been on the circuit talking to many of you in person before, and she will be well known to many of you. Julia, thanks so much for joining me. So great to be here, Gemma. It's a pleasure. So Julia... 2022, quite a roller coaster, certainly from 2020 onwards, complete roller coaster, crazy times, but it feels like the key factors are, are very clear now that inflation and rates are the key drivers. Do you see that changing anytime soon? Emma, uh, I mean, 2022 was such a big challenge for investors. And in my mind, it was very hard because equities and bonds move the same way. And usually they move in different directions, which means if equities is having a bad year, you can find shelter in bonds and vice versa. But last year, there really wasn't a lot of places to find shelter. And that really made it quite difficult for investors. The good news is that bonds is starting to act as normal again against the equity market. So it can act as a shelter from volatility. Um, and we are seeing some strong interest and flows coming back into our fixed income spider ETFs globally. So not just in Australia. So that's nice to see. But looking into 2023 and the consensus, the consensus is US dollar weakness, slower growth, a big drop in inflation, muted equities, bullish bonds and a China rebound. So that's a bit of a summary on what's expected by the market in 2023. And I guess the good news for equity investors is that a lot of the bad news is already priced in. So as long as we don't see a massive earnings cliff and a huge drop and deterioration in the earnings outlook, I think a lot of the bad news around inflation and peak rates is probably already priced into the the market. Having said that, we know there's a bit of a lag between interest rates rising and it hitting the real economy. So this is a year where we will see growth hit and we will see a growth recession. And in fact, it does look like the world is going to see global growth hitting the lowest level that we've seen in around about 30 years. But I think for equity investors, it's important to focus on the future rather than what's happening in the real economy because the market prices in, I guess, around about 12 months into the future and have a look at what's already priced into the market and is the news getting better versus what's priced in or worse versus what's priced into the market? Yeah, it does feel like the market's relatively optimistic at the beginning of the year, which is quite interesting. Do you think, you know, so let's say these two factors continue to dominate inflation and rates. We're all obsessed. We have to follow every word Jerome Powell says very carefully. What do we know about what works and what doesn't? in a high inflation environment, in a rising rates environment? 
I think, first of all, there are some years where it's very easy to invest. The trend just continues, whether it's up or down, and, you know, investors just sort of set and forget. Unfortunately, I don't think 2023 is going to be one of those years. I think we're still going to see a lot of volatility in the first half of the year. Um, And it's probably a year where we are starting to see a bit of a pivot in terms of strategy and in terms of what to do. If we look back on 2022 and have a look at what worked, one of the biggest factors that outperformed is dividends. High yielding investments, um, not only in Australia, but all over the globe um, outperformed. And we, if we have a look at sort of our product performance, um, our high yielding ETF, SYI, was one of the best performers out there. But it's also understandable in the Australian ecosystem as well, because dividends are such a big part of the return we get from our investments. And I actually, Gemma, went back in time and had a look at how much dividends contributed to returns. And it was quite fascinating to do the numbers. So I went back to 1993, which was when the benchmark ASX 200 started, and had a look at how much dividends um, played in terms of total return. And what I found is that dividends accounted for just more than 40% of returns um, over that time. So that's a massive amount. Um, And I guess the good news here in Australia is that they're also a tax-effective investment as well. So look, I think dividends not only outperformed in 2022, but will continue in 2023 um, and act as a buffer to that volatility. Because although I think we're going to see a pivot, I think we're still going to see a bit of volatility in the first half of the year. The other factors I think to consider are quality and values. So in an inflationary environment where we're starting to see real yields rising, I think these factors um, can also um, play a big part in terms of portfolio. So I do suspect that the first half of the year and the second half of the year might look a little bit different because we see a bit more volatility in the first half of the year. Things like dividends, quality, value, I think are going to outperform. So in terms of our ETFCs, products like SYI, as well as QMIX, Uh, which I think will be in focus for investors. And I think we're quite lucky here in Australia because uh, dividends have outperformed. It also means that the Australian share market has outperformed against a lot of our peers around the globe. Yeah, we have the luxury of a market that's very heavily focused on dividends and that concentration's helped a lot of people. Also, I will say for retail investors, when I look at our guys and what they invest in, there's such a uh, a commitment to dividends. I was going to say desperation. That sounds a bit bit too much, um, but such a commitment to dividends, right? So many of our investors know that they need that yield and they will absolutely buy high yielding stocks and hang on to them. So long as they believe that the quality is there. I believe there was some research that went back to, I think, 1900, even perhaps late 1800s and looked at stock market performance and the impact of yield and yield was about 80 plus percent of the total contribution to your performance. It was absolutely extraordinary, but it's a longer time frame than most people have, right? I think it depends on the time frame and especially in times of volatility. I love that dividends can really act as a buffer to some of that volatility in markets. But, um, you know, not only in times of volatility is interestingly for Australian markets, but over time, um, certainly the 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 research is there that dividends do play a huge part in terms of returns. Our guys love that and they'll be very thrilled to hear that they'll continue to perform strongly after you know, some long years of finding that your bank shares may not have performed as well as you would have liked. I think for a long time, 
a lot of investors have felt like the cycle was no longer relevant. You know, we had 15 years of falling interest rates and then zero rates here as well as everywhere else. And we had this most hated bull market that ground into 2020. Then sort of the extraordinary COVID collapse and everything that happened subsequently. It feels like the cycle is back and that normal economic factors like inflation that moves over time and is not always captured by the central bank bound of 2 to 3%, uh, that those things are back and they're real. Can you tell us about that? Gemma, I love cycles. Um, I, I'm a big fan of cycles. I think that life moves in cycles and I also believe that markets and economies move in cycles. I think the great thing about State Street Global Advisors is that we do white papers and academic research and one of my favourite uh, pieces is around the economic cycle. This particular paper looks at the leading economic indicator to define cycles over in the US and it goes back to 1961 to work out whether certain sectors outperform or underperform at different parts of the cycle. And I guess if we have a look at 2022, it was definitely the recessionary part of the cycle where the markets were pricing in recession. And if we go back in history and have a look at what tends to outperform at this part of the cycle, then the outperform tends to outperformance tends to be in sectors like the consumer staples, healthcare, as well as utilities. And if we have a look at what outperformed in 2022, it was definitely staples, utilities, utilities and the healthcare area. Underperformance at this part of the cycle is for things like communication services, which is really technology related, as well as technology, which is the mega caps and real estate. And of course, last year we saw technology as well as the property space being negatively impacted. I guess a big question for investors is as we move into 2023, you know, what part of the cycle should investors be focused on? And the next part of the cycle is the recovery recovery part of the cycle. Um, remembering that the markets do tend to price in the future. So having a look at the recovery part of the cycle and in the recovery phase, our performance is usually in areas like the consumer discretionary sector, the property space, as well as the material space. And underperformance is in things like healthcare staples and utilities. So you can see that performance in a lot of ways is flipped over. The great thing is that you can get exposure to things like the property space as well as the material space through ETFs or through direct investment as well. It's interestingly um, energy, which was the best performer last year, actually never features in this study in the top three or bottom three performing of any part of the cycle. And that really suggests that energy, rather than being um, swayed by what's happening in terms of the economic cycle, is driven by underlying demand and supply factors rather than the economic cycle. But I think it's really interesting looking at the market in terms of cycles um, because there is a lot of academic research which supports you know, what might outperform and underperform and really helps investors give a bit more of a tactical tilt to their portfolios. Yeah, I love all the research and I find it fascinating looking at some of the historical performance and imagining how it may relate to what we're facing into currently or how it may not. Sometimes it's very different. A lot of investors are desperately hoping the worst is over. They're certainly pretty keen to hear that the market really bottomed last year. What do we know from the research you have about whether or not that's likely? 
Well, history never really repeats, but it does tend to rhyme. And um, having a look at the numbers from 1963 and just having a look at the S&P 500 index in the US, because that's driving a lot of risk sentiment around the globe. And what we found was the maximum loss or the maximum drawdown in bear markets since that time is around about 38%. The S&P 500 in the current bear market from the top to the bottom, the drawdown has been about 27.5%. So it's still a pretty substantial drawdown that we've seen. But an interesting fact is that the S&P 500 has never reached the bottom before the Federal Reserve cuts rates. So I think we're still perhaps a bit more of an earnings cliff for investors in 2023 and more rate hikes to come that perhaps is going to be volatile conditions in the first half of the year, but come the second half of the year, especially if inflation falls, that hopefully it's a much better investing environment for investors. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this earnings cliff and what that potentially means for investors? You've used the term a couple of times and maybe people who are unfamiliar with it. Sure. The earnings cliff is just talking about, um, I guess, earnings moderating or seeing um, seeing earnings being negatively impacted. At the moment, if we have a look at consensus and what analysts are predicting for 2023 um, for the MSCI World Index, um, which looks at global earnings, analysts are actually not predicting to see any negative growth for any of the quarters in 2023, which means they anticipate that earnings will grow for each of the quarters in 2023. Now, that's not typical of a recession. What's typical of a recession is that you usually see earnings hit. So the big question, I think, is whether earnings are too optimistic and whether we need to see some of that consensus coming down um, and the outlook coming down for earnings. And that's really one thing we haven't seen um, with the market's pricing in recession is that consensus earnings becoming too negative, especially um, compared to what we've seen historically as well. So I think that's one of the things to be watching for. But if we don't see earnings being hit too much, well, that's a very positive environment for investors. And a big test of that, of course, will be uh, this month in confession season for the Aussie share market for half-year earnings, as well as the February half-year earnings, where it's not only about you know how companies performed for the first half of the year, year, but more importantly, what those outlook statements are going to be like. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting, isn't it? And I I also find it really interesting how few analysts have put significant downgrades into their uh, into their expectations. The usual advice for investors, frankly, at any time, but particularly when you're facing into difficult markets where it's harder to clearly pick winners, not that it's ever that easy, is to minimise risk through diversification. You've done all this research. What's it telling you about the benefits of diversification? Does that usual advice hold up? Yeah, I mean, last year was quite an unusual year in where we saw asset classes moving together. So if you were looking for diversification across asset classes, it was very difficult to do. I mean, the only areas that really outperformed last year were probably the US dollar and commodities. But, you know, equities had a pretty negative year, bonds were pretty negative. Um, And if we have a look at sort of performance across the year, most of it was quite negative or or flat. This year, it's going to be different in that um, the usual relationships are coming back. So it, it will be 
easier for investors to diversify their portfolios. And I think it will be important as well, especially in the first half of the year. Because if you think about diversification, when times are good, you know, you can let your core do what it's supposed to do. It's when volatility hits and times are pretty tough that really, um, you know, investors should focus on diversification. And one of my uh, my favourite um, studies is called the ostrich effect. Um, not sure if you've heard of the ostrich effect, um, Gemma, but when I think of an ostrich, I think of that bird that uh, doesn't fly. And the ostrich effect is based on a common but a false myth that the ostrich buries its head in the sand to avoid danger. And there's been studies done on investor behavior during times of volatility. And the research showed that, um, and this was a study by Carlson in 2009, it showed that investors in Scandinavia, they looked at the value of their investments 50 to 80% less in times of bad markets. And this is precisely when investors really do need to focus a bit more on their investments and give them a bit more love and attention um, than in good markets. Because in good markets, good markets, your investments look after themselves. It's in the bad markets that diversification really does become important. Um, And look, I really love this part of the cycle. I think it only sort of comes once every eight to 10 years. And for me, it really sets up investment returns over the next cycle, which is over the next sort of eight to 10 years. So this is a part of the cycle that excites me. But uh, having a look at the ostrich effects, sometimes that volatility tends to scare off investors when this is exactly the time when diversification and looking at your investments and giving them a bit more love, maybe through a broader based ETF or looking at diversification of, of your holdings is really important when that volatility is higher. I am so disappointed to find out that ostriches don't really bury their head in the sand. <laughs> I had always believed that to be true. And that is that is a tragic fact because it's such a good analogy for so many things. We, exactly to your point, have found that there is just far less interest in markets at the moment and far fewer people actively engaging with their portfolios. And I also find it fascinating, right? There's, it's always a good time to be looking for opportunities when, so say when the others are fearful, that's your opportunity, right? This Um, is my favorite time. It only comes once every uh, eight to 10 years. So I'm setting it up for the next uh, cycle. I mean, it's pretty exciting just to think about it, but you know, I'm a bit of a market nerd. I think that for so many of our guys, and I, I completely understand it is they came to investing during COVID and they had just such extraordinary successes in such a short period of time. Anything that is not giving you a a 30% discount on the overall market price in three weeks, which is what people were buying. And then, you know, dramatic 50% bounces in 12 months feels really disappointing. And I get, I get that if that's your first experience of investing or your biggest investing experience, you may have been sort of, you know, trucking along, picking up an ETF here and there or, you know, buying the odd share and then COVID came and you threw all your money at the market because the volumes that we saw during that period were crazy, almost all buying, people just picking the eyes out of the opportunities that were sitting there. Everything else was really, really dull, right? This doesn't feel fun at all. I mean, the euphoria part of the market is absolutely thrilling, but I don't think it it, it bodes well for longer term returns, whereas the part of the cycle that we're at at the moment, if you're investing for those longer term returns, I think it's pretty exciting. 
Yeah, so we've noted um, a real shift back to ETFs, a real shift back to core, solid, dare I say boring, long-term investing. <laughs> and clearly people are, you know, not battening down the hatches, but just taking a very sensible approach now. But I, I can feel the energies come out a little bit. People are sad. They're sad that the fun's gone. What are you talking about? The fun's gone. <laughs> yeah. The fun's all in ETFs. And the boring approach is the approach that works over time. And I, I understand, um, you know, when you're interested in the market, you like to have your fun money. But the core part of your wealth, you know, that's that's super important. My husband and I, we sit down and we, you know, go to one of those restaurants with the paper as tablecloths and we jot down what we want to do. Um, but really it's about long-term wealth creation in the end. Um, and you can have your fun on the side. But um, th- this is a fascinating story actually. Um, and this was a bet between Warren Buffett and Protege, which uh, was from the heads, hedge fund industry. And I think this was back in 2008 where they basically bet at least $1 million to go to their charity of choice um, to work out whether um, an active approach would outperform a passive approach. And basically, they invested into the S&P 500 index as a passive approach. And then for the active approach, um, a hedge fund fund, fund um, manager um, invested into 10 of what he thought would be the top performing funds over the, the next 10 years. Um, and it was interesting to see this study because Buffett is obviously an active manager as well. But what he was saying is that fees matter over time and the fees that the hedge fund industry were charging would eat into returns. So what we found, of course, in 2008 was a global financial crisis hit. So that first year, um, I think the S&P 500 underperformed with a negative 37% performance, whereas the hedge funds, they had a negative performance, but negative 27%. Um, But then over the next uh, sort of eight years, it became quite clear that um, passive approach actually beat and a large part of that uh, was fees. So, you know, it doesn't sound sexy, but it does work. And that's why I guess we've seen that massive growth in exchange traded funds over time. The low fees, the compounding effect and the snowballing, I find it um, quite exciting. Um, So seeing that snowballing effect and I love compounding, just thinking about, you know, let's say you're investing $100,000 today compounded at 8%. Well, in 10 years, that $100,000 is over $200,000, which sounds great. You've more than doubled your money, but over 20 years, that's, you know, almost half a million dollars. And after 50 years, that's, you know, just under $5 million. So the power of compounding is really the power of time. It's not that 10 years, but it's the compounding that happens after that, where it just completely snowballs. That gets quite exciting. So I think part of it is just the discipline to stick with, I guess, what a lot of people may see as the boring part of um, investing in ETFs, but the low fees, the compounding effect, um, I think in terms of long-term wealth creation, that's pretty exciting. So my next question was going to be, what do you look for when investing? But perhaps you've already answered that question. What do you think investors should be looking out for? Uh, Well, I think, you know, actually investing for most people is quite difficult to do because when you think about it, it's quite an an emotional investment. So um, I guess one of the behavioral parts of investing is actually try to 
automate as much of it as you can. So whether you have, you know, a direct um, part of your salary coming out every month that automatically moves somewhere, um, it's about having that regular investment and that compounding over time. But really, I think, you know, if I was a bit younger, Gemma, I would say start as young as you can, try to automate a certain part of your salary going into investments and put your money in a low vehicle low fee vehicle that allows your your money to to compound and I think that over time that um, you know that's going to be a pretty exciting thing to do um, hopefully you know my kids I can start with them early and they get to see that benefit happen over time yeah I love that advice obviously being young really helps but anytime <laughs> it's a good time to start there's a wonderful quote in the economist this week that, that says youth is wasted on the young but wealth is wasted on the old that is so <laughs> true i love that quote <laughs> i mean i would much rather be a wealthy old person than a not wealthy old person but either way start now that seems to be the upshot oh to be young again <laughs> you are not an old person you're all good plenty of time plenty of time julia state street global advisors you guys do this great research and i love it it's so helpful to go this is not just my opinion we've gone back and we've looked at enormous data sets so much time has passed so much information is available to you to help you make good decisions that buffett example is amazing Tell us how people could get access to that and find out more about you guys. Yeah, I love reading um, academic research reports. Um, it's been a hobby of mine for a while. And I think one of the great things about being at a large organization like State Street Global Advisors and State Street is that there's a lot of academic research, but it's actually done by people in the market. So it's very relevant to investing. So I love sifting through the white papers and the research that's available. So our website is ssga.com if you want to read through some of those papers or find out more about about products and um, you know some of those reports on market cycles, diversification. I, I love it. I'm the same. And <laughs> I know <laughs> it's pretty sad, but I used to love it when I was young too. So it's fine. It's fine. It's not just an old person habit. We're good. Julia Lee from State Street Global Advisors. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Gemma. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love getting your questions. We love hearing from you. Uh, always want to hear about the topics that you want to know more about, please just email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.